listening to the Northside Christian Church Sermon Podcast. These teachings are recorded at our weekly Sunday morning gatherings in Springfield, Missouri. For more about our church, service times, and how to connect, visit northsidechristianchurch.net. Imagine every one of you have had that experience when you open up your phone and suddenly Facebook throws a memory in your face there, brings something up. And, you know, sometimes when that happens, whether it's a, a Facebook memory that comes up or, or for me now, they've got the, the portraits of the year that just show up on your phone. And, you know, if you click on it, start playing a slideshow or something. And, and these memories just come flooding back. And sometimes it's good. Sometimes you, you get the memory and you're just like, oh, that's so sweet. And, oh, I can't believe that was a year ago or, you know, whatever it is. And it just, it, it can be like a, a, just a, a shot of blessing in your day. But if you're like me, you've also had those moments when all of a sudden a memory pops up, a picture comes up, whatever it is, a portrait of the day, of the year, and it starts playing some slideshow. And all of a sudden um, you realize that the emotions that you had felt a long time ago about something that happened that, that kind of wrecked you, that was hard and difficult, just come flooding back. And it's not a blessing in your day. Instead, it's, it's a memory where you realize you still have a lot of pain and emotion attached to it. It's a picture of a graveside service and, or people with family, extended family at a funeral home. And it's moments like that that it, it can kind of remind you of loss, death, Not everything in our past is good. In fact, a lot of things in our past are hurtful, painful. We struggle with it. In fact, I imagine every one of you, you've had unwelcome and unexpected things come into your life from your past. Things in your past that made life more painful, more difficult, more of a struggle, more hard. And those things from the past continue to affect you're present. I think that's true for all of you. Prompting you to say something like, you know, I didn't sign up for this. I know that happens in a lot of ways. You know, today, uh, here's what's probably going to happen. Maybe it already has for some of you. Today's Super Bowl Sunday. For some of you, a memory is going to show up from the past, some Super Bowl party, because you'll use the word Super Bowl, and now everything, every advertisement is going to be about the Super Bowl. And, and you're going to use those words. And a memory from the past of you celebrating the Chiefs. Remember that when they won the Super Bowl? Remember that? Yeah, you do. You remember it. But as soon as the memory pops up and it may be feel good for a moment, the next thought is going to be, we have to watch the Rams and the Bengals. Seriously? Really? The Chiefs were up. You're going to remember they were up 21 to three. I mean, this is going to come to your mind. Couldn't even score one point in the second half. And suddenly pain is going to come to you. Now I'm, I'm saying some of that tongue in cheek because those kinds of memories are minor. The pain of those are minor in comparison to the unexpected and unwelcome that have come into your life many times over that have brought hurt, heartache, struggle, pain. You know, all week long, our, our staff has been praying for uh, our office administrator, Lori, for her and her family, specifically for her husband, Bobby, who'd already been battling eye cancer. We've been praying for that. And then he found out that he has another kind of cancer. Found that out, I think it was on Monday. And we've been praying because they said there's two types that this cancer could be. One, it's not treatable. The other one, it's treatable and curable. We prayed all week that Bobby's cancer would be this specific kind of cancer. that we were. It's not often you pray for someone to have a specific kind of cancer. But we did. Maybe in your life you have too. And we were celebrating, I think it was on Friday when we got word that it was that specific kind of cancer. It is treatable. It is curable. It's going to be an extensive surgery happening on February 28th. But you know, all week long we were just praying because sickness, as many of you can testify to, is an unwelcome visitor in your life. And it's not just sickness. I'll tell you what else is unwelcome. Abuse. Neglect. Fractured relationships, economic tragedy, poverty, verbal put-downs, discouragement, injustice of any kind. When these come, the past pain of those kinds of things can be debilitating to your present reality. It affects us right here today. And I would also imagine that every one of you haven't just had the wounds and the hurts of the past and those failures affecting you. But I think for many of you in this room, you can acknowledge there have been some bad decisions that you've made in the past. And those bad decisions have led to regret and shame and consequences that you still feel 
today in the present. And the question that I want to talk about today, I want us to look at today, is how do you deal with past hurt and failure? How do you deal with past hurt and failure? This matters because for some of you, maybe you've tried to suppress it or ignore it or just get over it. But the reason this matters is because without deliverance from your past hurts and your past failures, then those past hurts and failures will multiply in your present and your present pain will be far greater than the pain you experienced in the past. You'll feel like you can't get away from it. You can't get out of it. it it's, it's clinging to you. It's, it's plaguing you. It's following you. It's hindering you from being who God wants you to be. And so because of that, there's probably a lot of you in this room right now, you need patterns of thinking renewed. You have suppressed experiences in the past that need to be turned over to the Lord. You have past hurts that you need to release. And you have past sins that you haven't asked for forgiveness from the Lord or from someone else. You have regrets. You have memories that you haven't handed to the Lord to let him carry the pain of that. You've held on to things that God wants to release you from. And I'm going to tell you right now, the problem when we don't deliver our past to the Lord is this. We give the past a much louder voice than it deserves. We need to lean into God's voice. We need to let God tell us about the future that he has for us. We allow past pain, hurt, and failure have a much louder voice than it deserves. God wants to lead us into a better future. And I just want you to know today, no matter what you've done, no matter your past, no matter what you've struggled with, no matter what you've experienced, no matter what unexpected or unwelcome thing came into your life, you can trust God to deliver you through it. You can lean in him and trust him to deliver you through whatever past hurt you have experienced or that you're experiencing now. He wants to give you a new identity. He wants to give you a new purpose. And to see this today, I want us to, we're beginning a new series today, but I want you to open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter one. We're going into Exodus because Moses, this key character that we want to look at, he was used by God to deliver people, to deliver them. But before Moses could deliver others, he first had to be delivered himself. And I want us to look at him as this example of deliverance and today delivered from your past. As you open up to Exodus chapter 1, which is the second book in your Bible, it's about 1500 B.C. The Israelites, this chosen people of God, they need deliverance. They're slaves in this empire of Egypt, Pharaoh the primary ruler, he's oppressive in every way. In fact, the first 18 chapters of Exodus deals with the plight and the deliverance of Israel from out of those oppressive forces that were coming against them, specifically in the pharaohs that ruled over them. It's believed that during this time period, because you had several different pharaohs, that the, the pharaoh of the oppression was Thutmose III, and that the oppression uh, of the exodus, as they were exiting Egypt, was Amenhotep II. So these are the pharaohs, if I pronounce their names right, that were ruling at the time. Joseph, this Hebrew Israelite who had, who had come to second in command of Egypt, is now dead. It's been a hundred years since he was there. And the present pharaohs don't know him. They don't remember him. And because of that, we come to Exodus chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. I, I want us to look at this to see how God delivers us from our past. We start with the account where it says, now Joseph and all of his brothers and all that generation, they died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful and they multiplied greatly. They increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. I, I want you to underline or mark or circle or highlight, however you're doing it, a few words here in this text, which would be exceedingly fruitful, multiplied greatly, increased in numbers. And the reason I would have you mark that is because whenever you're going through oppression and pain and hurt, there's this moment where you're like, God, are you not going to come through in your promise or not? Are you going to, are you going to do what you said you were going to do or not? Are, are you who you are, say you are or not? And in those moments, we can really question God. And I want you to know that as you read these words, this is the fulfillment of God's promises, even in the midst of their pain and struggle and hurt. 
And the reason for this is because 500 years earlier, in Genesis 15, 13, we read this. Know for certain, God's talking to Abraham, know for certain, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. And they'll be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. And, and when you read that, you got to know God keeps his promises, even when you're in the midst of the trial. So God promised Abraham that his descendants would multiply. And guess what? They did. In fact, it's estimated there were 2 million Israelites. People said at least one to two because there were 600,000 men that came out in the Exodus. We know those numbers. And so it's estimated there must have been close to one to two million Jews for sure, at least. This was the fulfillment of God's promise that they would expand and grow. Secondly, God promised Abraham's descendants that they would be enslaved, and they were. And so whenever we go through these hard times, Jesus said in this life, you will have trouble. When you do, don't, don't look at God and shake your fists and say, well, what are you, who do you think you, are you not? Let? God fulfills what he promises. In this life, we have trouble. Abraham says, you're, you're going to be enslaved. But then God promised that he would punish. He would punish the nation that enslaved them and give their possessions to the Israelites, which we'll learn as we read through the stories exactly what happened as they walked out of there. Maybe there's pain and oppression that you're experiencing right now. Maybe, maybe it's coming to your life for various reasons. Maybe it's because you feel like you've been neglected. Maybe it's because of bigotry. Maybe it's even because of racism that you've personally experienced and the pain of that. It's, it's marked your past. But I want you to know today is this, is that God's promises are bigger than your past hurts. And I want you to know that your hope for the future is greater than the pain of your present. God gives hope for the future. God's promises are greater than our past. And, and I want you just to remember that as we go through this story, as we read this, because these people are hurting, but God is still working. In Exodus 1, 11 through 20, we read this. It says, so they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. God's promises were still coming true. It goes on and says, So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites, and they worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields and all their harsh labor. The Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Why? Because the text before that said they became to fear them. The Israelites were so great in number. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, when you're helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and they give birth before the midwives arrive. Okay, first of all, that's a lie. Second of all, it's a little bit offensive, isn't it? Like they got to dig in, you know, like, well, our women aren't as, they're a little tougher, stronger, you know, anyway. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. And then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now it's every, everybody, every man, woman, everybody's on deck. You see a Hebrew boy, put him in the Nile. You're reading this and you read about two midwives Shipra and Pua, they're the administrators of the midwives. It wasn't like they were the two midwives for the entire Israelite population. No, they, they're, they're in charge of the midwives. They're the ones communicating to Pharaoh. And the king tells him, every time you deliver a boy, kill him. 
Not only did they not do that, when Pharaoh inquires about it, they lie. Is it ever okay to lie? Your answer to that question may depend on if you have your children in the room or not right now. (laughs) There are leaders in Christianity that are somewhat divided on this to some extent, but the Bible never condones lying for the sake of lying. But it does show occasions when people lied in order to preserve a higher moral imperative. For example, Rahab with the two spies. God was bringing his people in to bring justice onto the Canaanites. We talked about that last week and tried to give some perspective on that. And Rahab hit him. And when the king of Jericho asked her where those spies were, she lied to protect them. And she knew what God was doing through his people. For the higher moral code of what God was doing, she she lied and God protected her. Here we have two midwives who lie because an immoral law that is opposed to God and against God's will was given to them. They did not obey it because God's law is always higher than man's law. And so they, they then lie to Pharaoh, but in so doing, it was to protect a higher law, sanctity of life. Diedrich Bonhoeffer who was helping Jews during the Holocaust, held that under certain circumstances, lying was not only morally permissible, but morally mandated. Thus, Bonhoeffer advocated deceiving the enemy in circumstances of war, and he had no compunction about lying in order to facilitate the escape of Jews from facing extermination. Love demanded it. Love being the higher moral code. It's the same thing when someone's asked me before, you know, if you... If your wife and your daughter were in hiding and somebody was there and they were going to hurt them, you know, would you lie to protect them? I think love, the higher moral code, uh, just, just Wayne Bushnell speaking, would say, yes, I would feel perfectly fine lying to protect my family in that kind of an instance, in that kind of a moment. Corey Tin Boone did that. But I also heard this week Corey Tin Boone's sister did not believe in that. And when someone came to her one time, I heard this from Lori Medlin, and asked her if she knew where any Jews were, she said, yes, there was one sitting right there at the table, and she pointed her out. And she was whisked off to prison and taken there, but according to the story, which I don't know very well, I didn't, I'm, this is not in my notes, it just started happening, sorry. Um, <laughs> there's a conversation, and here, now you're getting it. Uh, whisked them away, but at, it was, some circumstances happened, and she ended up getting released. God honored both those women and their approaches. That they took. So, but in this case, God blesses these women, blesses the families who did not follow Pharaoh's orders, blesses them through their lies to protect these boys that were being born. And Pharaoh cannot stop God's promises from coming true. And yet, he commands everybody to start throwing boys into the Nile. This is the dangerous, oppressive environment that Moses is born into. We read in Exodus 2, 1 through 4, Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. And she became pregnant, gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Hopefully, if he was not a fine child, she still would have hid him, hopefully. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. So tucked away in the slum of Egypt somewhere is this obscure Hebrew family. The dad's name is Amram and the wife's name is Jochebed. We know that from the Exodus chapter 6 genealogy. They've got two kids, Miriam, the older sister. She's mentioned by name in Exodus 15 and in Numbers 26. And Aaron... The older brother of Moses, who's mentioned in Exodus chapter 6, verse 20, Jochebed is now pregnant. And and because of Pharaoh's decree, she hides Moses for three months. And when she can do it no longer, it's interesting. She does what Pharaoh said. She places her baby in the Nile. The boy's in the Nile. But he's in a basket among the reeds. And she's placing this in God's hands. 
Miriam is watching from a distance when Pharaoh's daughter comes to bathe and sees the baby boy filled with compassion for this child and picks him up. And Miriam, observing this, comes out and says, uh, do you need a, a Hebrew uh, woman to nurse your baby? And she says, yes, and I'll pay her. Oh, so now Moses' mom is nursing her own baby and getting paid for it, which is like what every mother would like to see happen. (laughs) Moses' mother cares for him for quite some time until he goes into Pharaoh's household. And Pharaoh's daughter, she's the one that actually names him Moses. And Moses' life can just really be, be summed up in, in about three 40-year time periods. And the first one is this. For the first 40 years of, of his life, he's an adopted child in Pharaoh, of Pharaoh's daughter. And, and if Pharaoh, in this case, is the first, then the daughter would have been Hatshepsut. I don't know. <laughs> I think it's how you say it. But that would have been the daughter that we know from history that would have found him. It is there in the palace that Moses learns how to walk like an Egyptian. <laughs> Which he does. He's, he, Acts tells us he's literally educated in the wisdom of the Egyptians in the palace. Then he's a fugitive in Midian for the next 40 years. So the first 40 years, Pharaoh's uh, child of Pharaoh's daughter. The, the second 40 years, he's a fugitive in Midian, pretty much living out there with his father-in-law because he's been on the run. And then for the last 40 years of his life, he's a great leader of God's people. God delivers Moses from his past and gives him a new purpose. Moses' story can kind of be summed up like this. Egypt, wilderness, Egypt, wilderness. Somebody said it this way. The first 40 years of Moses, he thought he was a somebody. The second years, 40 years, he learned he was a nobody. And the last 40 years, he discovered what God can do with a nobody. That's kind of his life. And, and today, we're, we're just kind of looking at these first 40 years of Moses' life. It, it covers it very quickly, but you begin to realize there was a lot of unwelcome, unexpected things of hurt and pain and baggage that came into Moses' life that he had to overcome. And, and I think as we share about some of this, I'm going to throw in this other scripture from Acts chapter 7, when in the New Testament, it's reflecting back on Moses' life. And it says, Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites, and he saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. And the next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting, and he tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. Why? Because it was found out what he did. He had hid the Egyptian in the sand, according to Exodus, and and now it was known. In fact, it tells us in Exodus chapter 2, verse 15, that when Pharaoh heard of this, that he had killed the slave master, Pharaoh went after to kill Moses. He was searching, he was hunting him down to kill him. And in those first 40 years of Moses' life, we see, you know what? There was a lot of pain and baggage and hurt and failure that he experienced. And if you were just to go down the list, you could say, you know what he and his people experienced was slave labor, child extermination. He would have experienced separation from his birth mother when he was then taken away and ushered into the household of Pharaoh. He's an adopted slave. I don't know, maybe that brings the separation anxiety and things that can happen with that. He, he experienced the indoctrination of whatever that Egyptian culture was at the time or whatever they taught about their gods and, and their culture. And he was highly educated, likely speaking both Egyptian and Hebrew. When he realized that he was Hebrew, that these were his people that were slaves under this oppressive failure, and he saw their suffering that was going on, at one point even seeing a man beaten to the inch of his life, and when Moses intervenes, we realize Moses kills a man. That's in his past too. He killed somebody. 
And then we see that Moses, who's powerful in speech and action, probably had to overcome his own pride and position and, and at that time overconfidence. And then there were things in his past that don't necessarily look like bad things. Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament, verses 24 to 26, tells us by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, so here we are, we're at his 40 years of age now, he refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Some of the things in his past that, he, that were baggage to him that he had to let go of and get over are the things that our world is pursuing and promoting and condoning and chasing after. The things our world would say, you need that, get that, grab that, have that. So Moses had to get rid of those things from his past in order to be who God was going to lead him to be. That meant for Moses, he, he had to set aside his royal privilege. He refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He set aside the royal privilege in order to, in order to do what God wanted him to do. And then it said that he had to deny the fleeting pleasures of sin. I mean, he had everything at his disposal, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. It was all there for the taking from Moses. He had a front row seat to it all. And Moses denies himself those things. Because they would lead to greater unwelcome pain and baggage and hurt. Moses even gave up the wealth of Egypt, the treasures that he could have, the materialism, the greed that plagued the culture that was going to plague him. He had to give those things up. He had to leave it in the past. And sometimes the things that you need delivered from are the very things that the world around you is craving and consuming and promoting and advocating for. And, and it's holding you back and you got to leave it in the past. You got to step forward with who God wants you to be. And what's happening here is God is preparing Moses to deliver his people. But here's what we got to know. Before Moses could deliver the people out of Egypt, God had to get the Egypt out of Moses and Moses out of Egypt. The preparation, which we're going to talk about next week, is what allowed Moses to begin to lead people out of their past, the pain and hurt of their past. And, and I don't know all of your story or how you got here or the stuff that you have personally had to overcome. Even those of you that I know, there's more to your story that I don't even know that, have, that are in your past, hurt, pain, unexpected, unwelcome things that have come into your life and those things have been painful to you. But I know that there are four things from your past that's impacting your present. I don't know every story, but I know there's four things in your past that's affecting your present. And it's failure. You've all experienced it. It's disappointment. You've all experienced it. It's wounds, hurt. You've all experienced it. And it's loss. Those are the four things that are in your past that are affecting your present. Failure, disappointment, wounds, and loss. And the only way to get beyond it, the only way to get past it is to walk with God every day because he's writing a new chapter in your life. Your past, yes, it will always be a part of your story. It'll always be in your memory, come to mind, just like Facebook sometimes throws it up in your face. Every once in a while, it'll just come up when you least expect it. Yes, our past will always be a part of our story. But God is making you into a new creation. That's what 2 Corinthians 5 is revealing. God is making you into a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. God's doing a new thing in you. He wants to deliver you from your past into a better future. Because the cross of Jesus, it proclaims to every one of us that our shame and regret and guilt and sin, it's been nailed to that cross. Jesus has taken it away. We need to allow him to do that because we live, we take that regret and shame and consequence, everything from the past, and we hang on to it. We drag it with us into the present. We never let Jesus deal with it, but Jesus wants to remove it. He wants to take it away once and for all. Your pain doesn't define you. God wants to make you into a new creation. He has a better future for you. Your, your past can actually become fuel that helps you defeat the enemy. 
The enemy who's always reminding you of the things in your past that are broken. But God wants to deliver you out of it. And believe me, all of us have things in our past. Loss, failure, disappointments, hurts, wounds. Those things in our past that's affecting our present. But God wants to deliver you and deliver you out of it. Today I've asked uh, Dustin Harris right here to come. And I, we were at the Kingdom Men Conference and Dustin shared his testimony among many of our guys. And I asked Dustin to come and just share some of his story because it is a story of deliverance from the past. So listen as Dustin shares. One more side. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I'm Dustin Harris. And this is a part of my story. It's titled, Who's My Best Friend? <clears throat> my mom and dad divorced when I was about three years old. Their relationship didn't last very long. As my mom took me when they split up, she really didn't have any life skills at 16 years of age and was struggling to raise me. My mom began selling herself for money as a prostitute so she could take care of me. She had a lot of bad men around us, and soon I was being abused by them, even at the age of three. At this time, my dad settled down and remarried. He began seeing me again, and upon us getting reunited, he noticed horrible bruises all over my body. My dad took my mom to court for custody, and my mom knew in her heart that my dad could and would raise me better. So she gave up custody of me. My life began to improve, but my mom never did see me. And so that rejection hurt me deep in my soul. I then began to question my self-worth. I felt a darkness flood my heart. It was at this time that my dad grew more and more into my best friend, my hero, the man that I wanted to grow up and be like. But my dad wasn't the greatest example to follow. Now that I look back, my dad was an alcoholic and a drug addict. He never really got out of control, but it was an everyday lifestyle. So even at the age of seven years old, my dad would let me drink beers and I could watch pretty much anything on TV, no matter how sexual or inappropriate that it was. As the pain of being rejected by my mother grew, I sought a way of escape. And by the age of 16, I began smoking pot and drinking heavily. I began a cycle of seeking pleasure when I felt pain. I had now found a new best friend. And at the age of 17, I tried meth for the first time and found everything I ever wanted in this friend. I then drowned myself in these friendships every day for 10 years. This friendship stole everything from me. It destroyed every relationship, every job, all my money. It robbed me of my self-respect, and it hindered me in every area of my life. I became a prisoner in my own body, and I was full of hate and controlled by fear. At age 24, I began shooting up meth and cooking it to sell it to support my habit. Now this friendship had me locked in in my own prison. I began destroying other people's lives with my lifestyle, and my life spiraled out of control. I lost my license for 10 years. I lost all my friends and family. I was homeless, careless, hopeless, and wanting to die. I cried out to God, in whom I didn't believe in at the time. But God made a way. The Bible says in uh, John six forty four that no man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So I cried out to God to prove himself to me. If you're real, show me. I believe that's when he began to draw me. He started putting Christians in my path that started planting seeds in my heart. They began to grow. I finally got busted, again, for drug possession with the intent to sell. And I found myself in front of a judge again. This drawing process from God took two years, but I found favor from this judge. So he offered me a drug court program. It was an 18-month hardcore recovery classes, and I said yes, but was required to go to rehab first. I had to wait a whole month to get into that rehab, so of course I used drugs up until then. But the last time that I used meth, my grandmother's pastor came by my dad's house to get him to come to church. And I was there, and I was high and miserable. And this man confronted me. He began telling me about Jesus. I really wasn't interested, um, but felt real conviction as he spoke to me about Jesus. It was as if he had light radiated from around his eyes, and tears of compassion ran down his face for me. This confused me because I had never really met this man before, but it was like he knew me, like he knew something about me that I didn't know about me. I know now that he knew that I was going to hell, 
And that really broke his heart. I remember thinking to myself, if I ever go to a church, I go to this guy's church. I didn't believe a whole lot of what he was saying, but in the way he talked about Jesus, I knew that he believed it. And that stirred me up enough that I eventually went to his church the following Sunday. I walked in broken, alone, scared, skin, head with tattoos, rough. And that small country church in Spokane took me in and loved me like I had never been loved. I had never had anyone do something for me and not have an impure motive or want something from me or in return. They truly wanted the best for me and not the best of me. After a few weeks of going, I kept hearing the gospel, the good news, about this Jesus guy who died for my sins. And that I I could accept his payment for my sins and he would wipe them clean. And I'm looking back at my life, at all the sin and destruction and pain that I caused myself and others. I couldn't even believe that I could be forgiven from all that. It blew me away. I trusted Christ as my Savior and made him the Lord of my life that day. I went to rehab a new person, but most importantly, I found a new best friend. Then Jesus began restoring my life. And while in rehab, my dad came to see me and told me that he decided to stop drinking. He did that so that it wouldn't hinder me in my recovery. I was so blown away again because my dad had drank every day of my life. When I got out of rehab, my dad started going to church with me. We both got baptized on the same day and began a a year-long discipleship course together. We grew spiritually together and I began to see fruit in my life. The Lord raised me up and used me in the drug court program I was in. He restored my relationship with my daughter, who also got baptized a year later. I also was introduced to my future wife in drug court, Tara. I invited her to church on a Wednesday night, and the Holy Spirit of God convicted her of her sin, and she accepted Christ as her Savior. A year later, we were married and living in Springfield and starting our family. The Lord blessed us with three beautiful little girls to pour into and raise. Then the Lord blessed us with an addiction ministry at Cherry Street Baptist Church. We became the directors of that ministry. Everything seemed to be going perfect. We had 10 years of sobriety and three years into the ministry, but the ministry became number one to me. And all my attention was put towards it. After all, it's God's work, I thought. It's the most important thing, right? Well, no. The Holy Spirit showed me that my family is my number one ministry. They were falling by the wayside, and they began to resent church, God, ministry, and me, because I put it above them. It became my new best friend. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for revealing this truth to me. So we trained, uh, I'm sorry. We trained up leaders uh, to take over the ministry and left the church. We were led to Northside and began attending services here. We knew this was a spirit-led church, so we joined shortly after. We were very reluctant to step back into ministry because of the fear of not being able to balance it correctly. So we sat in the pews got very complacent, and after a year, we began to drift into missing a Sunday here and there, and then a month here and there. And before you know it, we had been out of church for six months. Temptation to use drugs again had knocked at the door, and after not being spiritually fed and away from the, fl- the protection of the flock, we went astray and took the bait. Satan always waits until you are the weakest when he tempts us. And so now, my wife and I, who had never used drugs together, were using meth several times a week, Sin worked its way back into our lives, and we were trapped in a prison again, but together this time. We stopped praying. We stopped going to church. We stopped following Jesus. We began to feed our flesh above everything else with pornography, drugs, and each other. We were stuck there for two whole years. Despite our loving John and Joy's Colvette small group reaching out to us often, we were too ashamed to respond to them. But their voicemails and their texts of encouragement and the pictures that they sent us were never a waste. They were always at the right time. And after two years of ugliness, we prayed that we could stop, and God made a way. The state of Missouri came to our house and took all three of our daughters into foster care. They were being neglected in so many ways. So here we were, our girls taken from us, our marriage falling apart, our business left in ruins, and our relationship with the Lord absent for two years. It was at rock bottom. 
Satan had come back into our lives to steal, kill, and destroy the abundant life that Jesus had given us. We were not being good stewards of what God had blessed us with, and we were so broken and so consumed by fear that we could not overcome it. So we began to open God's word, looking for strength and direction. Deuteronomy 6 says that we should not live by bread alone, but by the word of God. We literally had to read scripture out loud to each other all throughout the day to even make it through. It was the only thing we survived on for a month. The week the girls were taken into custody, we went back to church. We felt the Holy Spirit again for the first time in two years. Wow, how powerful. He humbled us as we humbled ourselves before him, and and we repented. And immediately, fear left us. And we, and we were placed, it was replaced with hope and confidence. At the end of our first service back, we went down to Decision Point to rededicate our lives to the Lord and to tell Wayne what we had let happen. He said, what can we do for you? How can we help? We were so ashamed, but his response was so special. There was no judgment. Just how can we as a church help you guys? And he prayed with us, and he said, and I said, could you introduce me to Ken Bryant, somebody that, who I looked up to from the men's Bible study from years ago, and Tara was drawn to a lady named Carol Bryant <laughs> from the women's Bible study she'd come home talking about. We didn't even know they were, they were married to each other or that they had a marriage counseling. It was all very spirit-led. So Wayne and the church paid for our counseling, and it changed our lives. We were put back on the right path, and our church here at Northside had come alongside us and our family to help restore us. We got our girls back from foster care six months later. Now our family is more secure than it ever was. Our marriage is more solid than it ever has been. Our faith is the strongest it's ever been. And our business is growing. And we step back into ministry here at Northside. I just praise God and glory to Him for restoring me and transforming me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Praise God. He delivers us. He delivers us from our past hurts, failures, fears disappointments, the things that wreck us in our life. This is what he does. He's a, he's a deliverer. And uh, God did this for his people. He wants to do it for you. He's done it for others in this room as well. He wants to deliver you. He wants to save you. He wants to redeem you. You know, the very first time the word redeem is used in the Bible is in the book of Exodus. Because he redeems his people. He buys out his people. There's even the blood of the lamb put over the doorpost to cover his people so that the death angel would pass over when judgment came. This is what God does for us, and we all desperately need it. You know, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul lists what wrongdoers do, and these are the things that he says keep us out of the kingdom of heaven. And when you read through those lists of sins, every one of you go, oh, shoot, I'm in there. Because in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says wrongdoers, they're not going to enter in the kingdom of heaven. And it's things like those who are sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who have sex with men, thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanderers. Swindlers, deceiving people for money. He, he just goes on with this list. And, and then Paul says, that's what some of you were. <laughs> that's what you were. And I guess that word were is pretty powerful in the text. Because after he says, this is what you were. He, he then says, but. <laughs> that's what you were, but. And here's what he says. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the spirit of our God. This is 1 Corinthians six eleven. He says, but you were washed. God washed you clean. You were sanctified. That means you were set apart holy to God. You were justified. That means you were made right with God. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that does it. 
He's the one that takes you from being dead in your sins to being alive with God. He's the one that that takes you from the past and redeems you and gives you a hope and a future. He's the resurrection and the life. He wants to give you life. He does this because he washes you. He, He cleanses you. You were made holy. His blood was sacrificed for you. His body was broken for you. Jesus did this for you because he wants to deliver you out of your past into a better future. I love how 1 Peter 3 talks about this when he's talking about how Noah and his family was saved through water. God saved them through water. I thought about this because in 1 Corinthians, he's using the same terminology, you were washed. And later in 1 Corinthians, in, in chapter 10, he talks about how the Israelites, they were baptized through the Red Sea In the cloud, they were baptized into Moses because God was enveloping them and he was carrying them through. He was delivering them. It's talking about how they were baptized in those ways. Then you get over to 1 Peter 3. It's talking about how Noah and his family, they were were saved through water. And then in 1 Peter 3, he says, And this water now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's, He's talking about how when you're washed, by the blood of Jesus. When you're washed through his, the power of his resurrection, he wants to give new life. He wants to give you a new future. He wants to give you hope. This is what he does. And so First Corinthians 6, you were washed. You were washed clean. Jesus did this for you. He wants to redeem you, buy you back. And Ephesians 1, 7 says, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And I want us just to reflect on that right now because as we remember our past, this is the time we need to remember what Christ did for us so he gave us a better future. And I, I want to ask all of you to take out your communion cups that you hopefully grabbed on your way in. If you did not, quickly, right now, get out of your seat and go to those tables at the back. We've got communion uh, on those tables. Some of these back here behind us with lamps have communion cups as well. But we want to partake of communion together today because every week... When we hold this in our hand, it is a reminder that we've been delivered. We've been redeemed. We've been washed. We've been sanctified. We've been justified. We've been made right through the sacrifice of Jesus. And just as he delivered his people many years ago, he wants to deliver you from sin into the life that he has for you. So we want to remember, we want to reflect, we want to think about that sacrifice that cleanses us, that heals us. So I'd like for us to take this bread in our hand because this bread represents the body of Jesus that was broken for us. Represents the body that was whipped, the body in which the crown of thorns was thrust into, the body that was pierced and it's his hands and feet. By his stripes were We're healed. And so as we eat of this bread now, let's remember the broken body of Jesus who was broken on our behalf for us to pay the price for our sin. As we open this cup, we're reminded that this fruit of the vine represents the blood of Jesus Ephesians 1, 7, in him you have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. It was his blood poured out for us because he was Christ, the perfect sacrifice. As he poured out his blood for us, he paid the price for our sin. He was able to remove our guilt. He alone was able to pay the price that we could not pay. And so as we drink of this, let's remember his sacrifice made on our behalf. Jesus, you are our deliverer. You are our redeemer. Moses was just a picture of what you were going to do for the whole world. You came to give us life and to set us free. And we thank you for it. And you're not done yet. You're still working. You're still moving. You're still healing. You're still redeeming. You're going to finish the good work that you're starting in us. 
And God, if we would just confess our sins and repent of those sins and believe in you, that you are the Lord, you are the Christ, you are God. Lord, you do all the work. And Lord, when we come to that acknowledgement that we're saved by your grace through our faith, then Lord, we're to be baptized into that water where when you see our faith, by your power, you wash us clean. Not because of anything we've done, but because of the, the blood of Jesus that's poured out on those who would humble themselves and acknowledge they are spiritually broken. Lord, I pray that you would do that for those listening here today. And Lord, you would redeem us and save us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things I'd like for you to do is uh, you were given a piece of paper when you came in today. And if for some reason you were able to get in, you snuck in and you didn't get one, there's some right here at the front of the stage. And you can come and grab one of these right now. And I would love for you to do that because we want you to write on this paper right now the hurt, the pain, the sin, the failure, the stronghold, whatever it is from your past that brings hurt and pain into your life. And it may be something from the past, maybe something in the present, maybe something you need to repent of, maybe something that just has caused wounds in you and you still feel the pain of it. We want you to write whatever that is on this paper and you can fold it. This is between you and the Lord, but here's what we want you to do today. As you leave today, in the breezeways, as you leave, there's buckets of water. At these side doors, on the sides of the room, and even at these doors at the front of the room, there's a, there's a bucket of water. And we, as you leave today, we want you to take this paper on which you have this written, this thing from the past that's wounded and hurt you. We want you to drop it in the bucket, and if you stir it with that stick right there, you're going to watch it just quickly dissolve in front of your eyes. And it will be a reminder to you in that moment, every time... You see, as you see that place in that water that Jesus has washed you. He wants to cleanse and forgive you. He wants to remove from you what's holding you back and wounding and hurting you. So we want to give you a chance to do that. So right now, please write on this paper, just as you're sitting there right now, write on this paper what that is. And after you've done that, and as we're singing, I'm going to be right over here at Decision Point in the room, and I'd love to talk and pray with anyone who would like to come and pray together or begin a relationship with Jesus or be baptized into Christ or who needs a cleansing and a washing of your own, let's talk and pray together. I'll meet you right over here as we sing. Thanks for joining us this morning, Northside. Before you go, make sure you check in and let us know you were here. Text the word CHECK to 417-233-1200. If you want to respond to today's service, you can do that online through Decision Point. If you want to know more about baptism or becoming a member, you can request more info at northsidechristianchurch.net slash decision. This is also the place to find out about our life groups, find out what sort of service opportunities there are, or if you just need to get in touch with a minister. And if you're online, you probably use social media too. Make sure you're following along with Northside on our Facebook page, Instagram account, YouTube channel, or Twitter. We are glad that you chose to join us this morning. As we head out for the week, let's make sure we take the love of God with us. Take good care of each other, Northside.